Hi there, CNFers. I know what you're thinking. B.O., first, last week, you serve us a plate of a reanimated podcast in the form of a punk rock, comedians in cars getting coffee, and now you serve up a podcast on a Thursday? Has the world gone mad? Bear with me. It's the way things fell this month. It's that atavistian time of the month, and since it falls so close to CNF Friday, and I don't have much in the can, I figured why not just run with the Atavist one, since it's so close to CNF Friday, and the Atavist piece goes live today, March 31st. Firth? Ugh. So today, I talked to Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief and lead editor of this piece, Oh man, thank you so much. I didn't I did not expect this to go in the direction of Metallica and the Beatles, but I'm really glad it did. And Kelly Loudenberg, who traded in her documentary film movie camera for the niceties of notebook and pen. I just kind of imagined Danny on his drive, you know, just whatever, smoking a joint, just driving through this wicked snowstorm and Thursday, Friday, we're just molecules floating through the ether, man. Just molecules. And this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. That's right. This is a show where we speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Grab yourself a beverage, kick off your shoes, and put your feet up. I'm nursing a free wave hazy IPA from Athletic Brewing. The great non-alcoholic beer brewers based out of Connecticut, and I think they've got a brewery in San Diego, too. I haven't had an alcoholic beverage since February 13th, the Super Bowl, and I gotta say, I kinda dig it. My goal is to turn alcohol into Mountain Dew. Like, I really crave Mountain Dew. I never even think about Mountain Dew, but sometimes I'm like, I'm gonna have a Mountain Dew. And I have one stinking Mountain Dew. No shame, nothing. Wow. How'd we get on that topic at the top of the show? Hank, Kevin, keep me on track. Four legs, two brains, whole lot of sleep. Anyway, Kelly Loudenberg made something special here for the Atavist magazine. Oh, by the way, consider subscribing to the Atavist for some of the best nonfiction reads you'll, you'll, that you'll come across. It's nonfiction that reads like fiction and bang for buck. My goodness. Why wouldn't you? No, uh, no, you, uh, you, uh, crafty cynic out there. I don't get any kickbacks from subscriptions, so you know it's coming from the hot. Magazine.atavis.com. Kelly's piece follows Danny Valentine, a brilliant artist and a, with a troubled past that sent him to prison for several years. His art was noticed by a couple who worked within my artists. Uh, their names are Buzz and Janie, and as Buzz's health declines, Janie calls on Danny to be Buzz's caretaker. It's a tender story and a bit of an amalgam, if I'm pronouncing that right, of many topics the Atavist routinely reports out and reports on. Kelly's story and her background as a documentary filmmaker lead to some wonderful insights into nonfiction storytelling, so I think you'll really dig that. But a little bit of housekeeping first. Be sure to subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcasts and consider heading over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly up to 11 newsletter endorsed by none other than Spinal Tap themselves. Yes, true story. Book recommendations, book raffles, 
cool stuff I stumble across on the internet that I think will really help you out on your journey. It's all about value, right? If you're going to open up that newsletter and scroll and read and click some of the links, I want you to have a good time. I know your time's valuable. You're listening to this podcast. I don't want to take up more more of your time, more of your bandwidth. We only have so much. So I try to add some value to your day there or whenever you choose to read it or where and whenever you choose to listen to CNF Pod, right? First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Also consider keeping the conversation going on social at CNF Pod on Twitter and at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. And yes, oh my goodness, yes, there is. There is, of course a Patreon page, patreon.com slash cnfpod. If you want to help put some money in the pockets of writers for the audio magazine that I put out about twice a year, and to keep, it, well, and to ho- help with hosting and other operational costs that come with doing a weekly show, shop around, see what you like. Coming soon will be exclusive month in review podcasts where I riff on that month's docket with some some of my favorite tape of that month and... And maybe something like uh, last week's episode, where it was that kind of punk rocky comedians in cars getting coffee kind of thing. Uh, so those will likely be exclu- exclusive pods for the Patreon crew. Uh, for now, though, we're going to hear from Sayward Darby, our good friend Sayward. And you're going to love the twists and turns we take as we shine a light on Kelly's piece. So let's settle in, CNFers. Let's give it up for the Atavist. <sighs> You know, so far as every every piece that comes to your desk or Jonah's desk, yeah, they're they're meaty stories that are often uh, there's a puzzle, there's an inher- inherent puzzle with most of the pieces that you that you guys work with. So you know, with with uh, with Kelly's particular piece here, you know, as the editor, what was the 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 puzzle like for you to help figure it out and crack its code? Yeah, well, this is a, a kind of a different, not different story for us, but um, it definitely hits some different softer notes, I think, than than some of the stuff we've been publishing recently. Um, it's a, you know, it's a romance, but it's also about friendship and it's also about justice. And there's just a lot of like, I don't know, just there's a lot of beauty in it, I guess, um, and beauty in some like unexpected places. And in this case, I think that, you know, figuring out how to structure it such that, because there are some genuine surprises in it, right? And just very like human beings, you know, stepping outside of a comfort zone and, uh, you know, how to structure it such that, you know, there are no cliffhangers in this story per se, but there are kind of surprise turns. And so figuring out, you know, where to locate those, but then also, you know, how to keep the line, the, the, the wall, if you will, between good writing and good storytelling and something get a, getting a little too saccharine. And, uh, because there is a lot of like, like I said, beauty and kind of sweetness to this story. And so, uh, so my, you know, job as an editor and actually Kelly, you know, as a writer was already, you know, I think very much in this, in this mindset and, um, and already, uh, like the first draft was not too saccharine or anything, but still, you know, as you're editing, like making sure that you're not kind of veering into that territory and letting actions and, you know, people's decisions um, speak for themselves as opposed to commenting on them. <laughs> yeah. um, because I feel like that's where you can get into like danger, danger zone of over sentimentalizing things. Uh, so, so yeah, it was really about, yeah, figuring out as ever, you know, where to put what 
and why, or sorry, how do, that's the wrong way to put that. Looking at all the pieces and deciding where to put them and justifying why they needed to go where they went, you know, as ever, we kind of toggle in time uh, in this in this story. Uh, and then also just from a writing standpoint, really, you know, figuring out how to strike the right balance between tugging at people's heartstrings, but not like yanking at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, to that to that point of of writing the thing in such a way where you don't comment you don't commentate on it It is is such a hard place to write from because you have to show so much restraint um is especially true with memoir too because sometimes you want to defend or at least justify a decision or at least maybe acknowledge that you know something was kind of unsavory but but you gotta you gotta find a way to just be like you know i'm i gotta let this scene speak for itself and uh and and be the bad guy maybe or let someone else be the bad guy it's it's a really mm-hmm. it's a really hard thing to navigate as a writer yeah it is it is and i actually think you just said probably the word i was dancing around and, and unable to get to in my previous answer, which is restraint, you know? And so it, that this is a, this is a piece where restraint is kind of everything. <laughs> and so, you know, figuring out with Kelly, you know, how tightly to hold the reins, um, when to, you know, slacken it a little bit. Um, but really, you know, trying to, uh, keep, keep things in check so that, you know, the story is speaking for itself and we're not getting lost in kind of like purple, uh, you know, language, um, or, you know, unnecessary sentimentality. And I think she did a really nice job with that. It's, you know, it's also on the shorter side for us. It's more like 85, 8,600 words. Um, and I think there's a reason for that, um, because of the kind of intimacy of the story and also because of the restraint that, you know, was really a priority in the writing and editing process. Now, when I spoke with Kelly, uh, she comes from a documentary film background and this was, at least from the conversation I, I had with her, I, I gleaned that this was kind of her first real foray into long-form written journalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when, when, you, when you're approached by a writer pitching a story to you who doesn't necessarily have the body of work in this vein, yeah, how do you work with a writer like that or – or make sure that they can pull it off what they're pitching if they don't have that body of work. You know, I think in in this case, like the story from like, I remember getting this pitch very clearly because, you know, to me, these three characters, Janie, Buzz and Danny, you know, just really jumped off the page immediately. Um, And I found their story to be an interesting kind of confluence of, of a couple of stories we've heard before, right. About, you know, people who support prisoners in the carceral system in the United States um, and, you know, ultimately support them when they're transitioning into, you know, the wider world after being released. That's a story. There's some really beautiful, we've done some beautiful journalism about that. Um, This is also uh, a story about, uh, you know, the people who become surprising caregivers and caretakers uh, for uh, the aging in America. And those are, you know, stories we've kind of heard before and I don't mean that to say that it's you know overdone or tried or anything point being there were almost like these little like genres of popular stories that this story had various components of and I was immediately excited by the way that I kind of saw those layers in her pitch and so you know as a filmmaker I think Kelly did a great job she saw the story right like no question she saw the story for me it was a matter of you know talking to her and getting a sense of uh you know how close can you get 
um, to these to these folks. And, you know, it was pretty abundantly clear that she really had their their trust and their support. And then on top of that, you know, really, and this is in, in some ways, you know, because this is a piece that um, has a lot of restraint in it, like, I'm a broken record over here saying that in some ways, like someone for whom the story is the first thing, as opposed to the prose, quote unquote, you know, Kelly was already forefronting exactly what the piece needed. Um, And it was clear to me from talking with her that that was going to be the case. And then in the editing process, you know, she sent something that I'm trying to remember. I feel like the first draft, it was like, too much restraint almost like, okay, let's give it a little bit more love. Like let's put a little bit more flesh on the bones here. Um, the bones are incredibly strong, but let's, you know, figure out how to, to, to just, you know, give it a little more shape. And she was really excited by that. Actually, it was one of those fun moments. I've worked with a couple of people who've never really done long form before, you know, having conversations about editing. And she said something along the lines of like, you know, editing is better than taking a writing class, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I mean, I personally agree. Like I love being edited for that reason. Cause I feel like I'm learning in, you know, in process as opposed to, you know, in a more sort of instructional format, Kelly was definitely game, right. To, to try something she'd never tried before, but she also just instinctively got what the story was supposed to be from from the get-go. And to me, honestly, like that's always the most important thing. It's not, can you write the best sentences? You know, are your powers of description off the charts? It's do you understand, do you feel this story? Um, and it was just so clear that that Kelly did. It was one of those, it was one of those pitches I got, I like immediately replied to because I was just really interested. Um, and I think it was because she was already in in her pitch, you know, really conveying that she, she that she understood the power of this story. Yeah, that's so important where you say, you know, the story was forefront and that is really hard sometimes for for writers who who we may be very seduced by stylists, whether they be a a David Foster Wallace or Didion or who John Jeremiah Sullivan, you know, these people that really just kind of leap off the page. And I think a lot of us get into writing because, oh, we're excited by that and we want to find some sort of way to contribute to that. And when we fly close to that, too close to that sun, of course, you know, many of our wings will melt and we will most certainly fall. So it's it's really a, it's such a delicate balance um, to really surrender to the story, but also try to try to in, inject some style into it without going over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I, I like that, uh, the sort of Icarus flying too close to the sun. I feel like so often, um, writers, it's, it's all the style stuff that makes that happen, right? Um, that they lose sight of the story. (laughs) They lose sight of the earth, (laughs) if you will. And, um, and, you know, fly too close to the sun and everything kind of falls apart because it becomes all about style and not about the substance, not about the story. And to be clear, like, I love a great prose stylist, but when in doubt, you know, let the story do the work. Um, and that isn't to say that the writer is not doing the work because the writer had to get the story. The writer had to understand the story. The writer had to, you know, put all of those bones together. And I think there's sometimes a misapprehension that the more words you put on the page, the more description you're able to, you know, include, the more details, <clears throat> you know, about a particular scene or something. Also, I have uh, apparently uh, chimes behind me or bells. Oh, I guess it's a Sunday. I was like, what is that? It's a church. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Um, not something I hear in Brooklyn. Um, so I think that, you know, it, it's like when in doubt, like keep, keep your eye on the story. People think that good writing is ultimately all about style. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that's just not true, especially for what we do. Right. Because it's like, 
you found the story, you constructed the story, you know, you, uh, you know, are laying it out for people in a compelling way. And like, all of that stuff is good writing, too. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of pro stylists, obviously, but you know, when in doubt, I always tell people like, focus on the story and be more restrained. Um, because if you, if you have a good story, um, and you're able to tell it, in such a way that a you know reader really wants to <laughs> keep quote unquote turning the page or scrolling down, you know you're succeeding as a writer, um, even if you know there's not some flair or panache to you know every sentence. Yeah, I think what really comes to mind when you're hearing you talk about this is, uh, and I always. I always devolve into like Metallica references because I can really overlay a, a lot of creative, <laughs> a lot of creative pivots with uh, overlaying it over Metallica's career. When you're surrendering to story, I feel like you're you're kind of being the writer is effectively the drummer, keeping keeping the beat nice and steady. But there are tendencies where a band can be over stylized and too many fills and too much too much flourish too much too much high tempo. So like mm-hmm. Metallica did that they pushed the they pushed the envelope with their first records and then with the Black album their most popular one the drummer really stepped back and just really kind of kept a pretty simple beat throughout the thing and ma- mainly just accenting all the other important elements of the songs instead of coming to the forefront. So to me it feels like the good writer who knows the story is just putting the right accent in the right place and keeping the beat and keeping you moving along. And then when there's really a good flourish, like a good riff or a good lyric, the drummer can be there to hit the cymbal, hit the toms, maybe do a little bit of a flourish. But it's all it's all in service of accenting the other elements of the band, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> no, it definitely does. And it reminds me, I'm... I'm one of the bajillion people who loved Get Back, the Beatles documentary. And one of the thing I one of the things I was so struck by in watching it was that nobody ever had notes for Ringo. Like they were all arguing about this or that, and Ringo was just there doing his job, keeping the beat, but also like not in a unimportant, like in, in a absolutely crucial way, right? And the whole time I was like, they could not function without like, I mean, well, of course they couldn't make the music without like a drummer, but there was also just a quality of like, this is the anchor of everything, you know? And, uh, you know, I know people say Ringo is the best Beatle. And I, after seeing that documentary, it's really hard to argue with that, not only because he is a great drummer, but also because he's hilarious and just, you know, gives no, gives no shits about (laughs) a lot of the drama. Um, But it's funny you say that I know far more about a band like the Beatles than I do about Metallica, but, um, but I, but I understand exactly what you're saying. And I think that's right. You know, Um, Which isn't to say that sometimes, you know, the drummer can't like have a fantastic solo or whatever, but really it's about like, are we, are we keeping the song on, on track? Right. Like, are Mm -hmm. we ultimately, yeah, it's, it's, it's the backbone. It's, it's, it's the anchor. It's, it's all of those things that, you know, hold things in place and together. Nice. I love it. See, I, every, every month and when I get to talk with you and Jonah about these kind of things and the the story of uh, that that particular writer coming up certain things just kind of bubble up in in my head and then as we talk about it other little crafty things pop up and i think it's really fun that we get to we don't know where these conversations are going to go but they always i think are in service of the piece in service of what you're doing with Atavis. and i think the listeners and the writers out there are going to glean just so much from this little conversation <laughs> about what kelly's story really triggered for us so this is as always say where this was great and uh this was a a whole lot of fun i think a lot of people are going to enjoy it oh man thank you so much i didn't i did not expect this to go in the direction of metallica and the beatles but i'm really glad it did 
You know it's a good day when I can fold in some Talica talk. I think there's an essay there about writers being more like drummers than, say, lead singers or soloists. Hmm. Hmm. Stroking the beard. Now we're going to talk to Kelly Loudenberg. She's a filmmaker, and this is her first foray into written long-form journalism, but not her last. She directed Exhibit A, or worked on Exhibit A for Netflix, uh... A, a series exploring controversial criminal cases through the lens of questionable forensic science, which is often far less scientific than it appears. She also worked on The Confession Tapes, a series that examines false confessions. Man, we live in such a rosy world. We get into some juicy stuff, so why wait? Here's Kelly Loudenberg. Ooh. Given that you have a, a, it would appear a lot of experience in filmmaking. So, uh, in what way, in what way does filmmaking really help your your writing? Well, this is my first long form piece. I mean, I've written smaller things, but I think this was kind of more like making a documentary. But I, en- I actually enjoyed the process a little bit more um, because it was more intimate and it didn't involve a lot of other people that I had to rely on, which I do like collaboration, but sometimes like when you're just in the process of working on a story, it's kind of nice for it just to be you and the people who you're writing about and who you, you know, respect and admire. So I think that that part of it was really really enjoyable. But yeah, it was really similar to making a documentary where I was talking to not just like Janie and Danny, but also all the people in their orbit. Um, Janie's former students, Buzz's former students, Buzz's um, work colleagues and old friends, I mean, really old friends from before he knew Janie. Janie's friends, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I kind of also made friends with one of Janie's friends who's in the piece and who lives in LA now, which is really nice, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's kind of just getting to know their whole world and talking to everybody around it and not just directly to both of them. And in documentary for my, both of my shows, I would do that. I would talk to a lot of people who I never even planned on interviewing, but who gave me the right kind of context and just helped me kind of embed myself in their story. Um, so I think it was really similar to that. And then the process of writing it is like the process of thinking about the structure of a documentary. Like, how am I going to unfold this story? And with documentary, you're more limited because you have to tell it with interviews and footage and archival. And if you don't have things like that to do it, you can't really, you can't use it. You can't do it. But with, with writing, if you, if you have the scenes and they exist, you can write them. So it was, it was, it was really more creative in in a way, in that way. Did you find that it was a bit more liberating and maybe in less um, overwhelming in terms of, you know, making a film? Of course, you've got crew you've got booms you've got microphones and then here reporting is kind of like you and your recorder in your notebook is like was it did it feel more streamlined I guess is what I'm getting at it did it felt like it felt more simple in a lot in a lot of ways I mean I'm not saying it was easier I'm just saying it was 
I, I just kind of, kind of felt like I could focus more and I could, yeah, kind of create things in my head too. And it just didn't have to be the distraction of all the crew and all the money. You know, when you're doing like the shows I've done, there's just a lot of money weighing on each each and, and each time you go out with the crew, you you know, it's cost money. Um, and this is just like you just have your notebook and your recorder and you don't have to put so much pressure on every interaction. You you don't have to get something out of every conversation. You can just kind of flow through it a bit easier. So I like that part. And you, you alluded to uh, structure earlier as well. And in in what ways, you know, or you can talk about the structure of this piece in particular, um, but also maybe give us some insight into how sometimes the structure of a, a documentary, you know, is, you know, similar or, or different than doing a sort of a long form written piece. You can open a documentary in the same way I open that story. I mean, it just, I think structure is one of my favorite parts is just figuring out like, okay, it's not just like beginning, middle and end. You don't, it's not like I need to go through a chronology. How am I going to, um, create something interesting that somebody wants to read, you know, and it's the same thing with the documentary. It's like, and you work with the editor too, just in, like you both ways here are, you know, working with a, a great editor is so important, but like within a documentary setting too, like the editor is also writing it with you and they're helping you think through um, what the structure should be. And you're kind of talking back and forth about it. And it's really a, huge part of like how the, the, the shape and the form that it takes. But I think with documentary, you are limited to having the right assets visually. And if you don't have them visually, you can't do it. And uh, you talk, talk about the, the opening element of, of this piece and it's a really nice scene. And I, I wrote sort of in my notes afterwards, just kind of like do like anatomy of the scene, like ask Kelly about, this and how she goes about, uh, you know, reporting something and reconstructing something like this. So maybe you can unpack the, you know, the opening vignette of this piece that introduced uh, Daniel and, uh, and uh, you know, just how you went about reporting that. I mean, the scene for me was that, that cinematic scene in my head of Danny getting this call from Janie on Christmas Eve that he, you know, that she really, she needed some help. And she was worn out and, you know, emotionally exhausted. And she she needed a backup. And she called Danny and he said, okay, I'll be there. And he, and he left the next day. And he, you know, packed up his, his car and, and came down from the Upper Peninsula. I just kind of imagined Danny on his drive, you know, just whatever, smoking a joint, just driving through this wicked snowstorm and getting into Ann Arbor to this beautiful neighborhood and this beautiful house with the family and what that scene must have been like. I mean, it was also probably very stressful for people involved. You know, it wasn't like a perfectly normal Christmas either. So Danny yeah. shows up into this kind of like a domestic scene. Yeah. But you also have to stick to the facts too. And you can't, mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I respect about this process that I'm learning about too, just as this is my first time doing something like this. It's like you really have to 
you know, you can make the scene cinematic, but it also has to be true, completely true. So that is something you have to work with truth, you know? So, um, it's, it was, it's still a very cinematic scene in truth, no matter what. So I'm glad that we were able to like bring it out. I think sometimes in documentaries, there is a tendency to get further from the truth. That's what's, you know, I think that's like what's happening now in documentaries. That's not how we made our shows. And uh, we were very committed to representing what actually happened. I think, I think things are getting more blurry in the documentary genre. And it's like, not something I totally like. Um, Is it getting over, uh, uh, stylized and uh, and dramatized is yeah very much yeah i think some things don't need to be documentaries you know they some things are better as a written piece or a podcast or or a fiction you know a a fiction you know fictional take on the story um it doesn't i don't know I, i just um sometimes it just gets to be stretched a little bit well, yeah, there was a uh, you know a bunch of years ago there was that whole thing about the lifespan of a fact with John Degada and the you know fact checker of a particular piece, and there was he was writing this essay, and it was part of the things where he liked the rhythm of certain sentences. Whether I'm gonna blank on some of the details, but like if he said like I like the way that this number or this date flows better in the sentence you know it doesn't matter that it's not verifiably true i just like how it sounds better and the fact checker was like well no if this is going to be something that is that is true then we need to stick to the facts but he's like no i don't care like there's the truth here with like you know lowercase t or uppercase t truth and he was like so stretching it because he wanted it to be more artistic but if we want to stick to the facts it's like no it's got i don't care how the sentence or the rhythm of the sentence sounds like facts are the facts and we got to stick to it so there's that rubber band reality you know it sounds like you and you and i we like yeah we want to stick to the wireframe of the facts but some people are blurring those lines as you were saying earlier yeah i think it's easier to do in in a documentary where there's not like such a strenuous fact checking process um i mean there isn't i mean they don't have like an outsider coming in and, and checking these things. Um, but I think it's kind of up to the filmmaking team um, I, and the legal team too. So I think this in the work that I've made, because it was uh, the, the stuff that I did for Netflix, like it, we did have to stick, we, we, we couldn't go, um, you know, off into left field because it was a legal issue too. And like, it was cost a lot of money if we, misrepresented things so we actually we did have people legal teams checking everything that we did and making sure that we were right so that was i actually appreciate that part yeah and like this piece opens up with that scene and then there are more the expositional informational sections as well so how did how did you go about you know balancing the the more kinetic scene work versus here's information you need to know to fully, you know, immerse yourself with these uh, primary characters. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a lot longer at one point and then a say word really helped cut it back. I think by just like working with her to find that balance of details versus um, what you were saying, scene work, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. And I think what I started from, though, basically, and what I gave Sayward to begin with was something that I felt like, okay, I'm going to take as many pieces of this and make them into scenes, like the scenes that they were, and just try to like write them like scenes and not get too bogged down in like mundane details. So I think like that's just how I started thinking about it. And then Sayward really helped me, the editor helped me expand on that and make that even stronger. And over the course of you know, writing a piece of this nature or whatever it is. A lot of a lot of individual reporters or writers they might have their own idiosyncrasies to to get to prime the pump to get into the in, into the flow uh, flow of things. Like I know Susan Orlean, like she's all about the lead. Like she can't sort of proceed until the lead is in place. And some people can be like, you know, I can put that off till later and do something else. So I wonder for you, you know, what uh, what are the things that you like to have in place when you're when you're generating the thing that's a good that's a very good question I think it it was a little bit scattered and disorganized for me and I I next time will be more organized about how I'm looking through the information before I start writing at first I was like you know this is my first time doing something so long so at first I was like maybe I should just outline it um and then I realized you know because that's what I would do for a documentary I would I would outline it very in a very detailed way and see if that works and even put it up on the wall, like some people storyboard a film, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thought about, okay, do I want to storyboard this? Do I want to outline it? Like, how am I going to get all this information down? But what I actually did was then I just started writing it and I just kept going through all the interviews and transcripts. And then I kept also talking to Danny and Janie along the way. So it was um, not like I went out and did all the interviews and then came to my desk and started writing. I was really like actively interviewing them the whole time, realizing that I needed more here or there. And I, and then I just, and they were just so wonderful about answering all these questions and, and also their memories are very detailed. Um, And so they helped where I needed to fill in all of these pieces that I just, I didn't have. So yeah, I think for this time it was like very kind of piecemeal, like working through it until I got through to the end. Did you find that because you were kind of writing it along as you were, you know, figuring it out and still spackling in holes with interviews here and there, did you ever run into an instance where you felt like you might've been painting yourself into a structural corner that might've been hard to get out of? Well, I knew the general arc of the story. So, I mean, there's, I didn't think I was going to do that. I didn't think, yeah. I, I did worry that the structure wouldn't work though. I was not worried, but I, it's hard to, when you don't have like a ton of distance to know, like, is this interesting? Does this yeah. build, does this work? Um, and so also just, I had to ask, you know, Sayward if, Hey, is the basic structure working here? And thankfully it, it was. Um, but then, you know, there were times too, where I'm like, wow, how much do I want to go into the prison art world culture, you know, because that's another world unto itself that I got to know um, through Danny and other artists that I've interviewed and talked to who are still incarcerated and a couple who are out. Um, but that was also a whole other world that I just loved and that I felt like, 
wow, how, how far do I want to go down that hole? And I think I did at one point go pretty far and then we kind of scaled it back, but like, that's just probably a whole nother piece right there. Um, but not, yeah. not the same thing. Right. And I think we should talk about access and how, how you came to know and meet, uh, Danny and Janie and, uh, and how you arrived at this story. It was kind of a long road that got me to Janie. I knew about Janie and Buzz before Buzz passed away, um, years before Buzz passed away. They're kind of legendary people that I had heard about um, through um, somebody who was very active in PCAP. And basically, I was I had these art friend, artist friends, activist friends in Michigan who one of them was an academic at the University of Michigan. And he was like doing a poetry class in one of the prisons at the um, – it was called writer's block and they were going all the time to these um, men's prison and doing um, not just like teaching poetry, but it was actively writing it with people there and reading really important texts. And I just was so in awe of this work and I did a piece for the New Yorker about it. And so I kind of got interested, like I kind of knew about them through that. And then that was like maybe 10 years ago or so, and then I got um, connected to this guy, Jim Denkovich, whose son, Chris Denkovich, got um, locked up when he was like 15 or 16. He was very young, given a life without parole sentence, which I think has been overturned because you can't get those sentences anymore to juveniles. Jim kept telling me all about PCAP, how amazing it was because he was involved. His son was in it, how he'd been collecting work. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And he's like, you got to meet Janie one day. And finally, he connected me to Janie. And I think that he connected me only a few months after Buzz had passed away. And Janie was planning Buzz's memorial when I first started talking to her. And she was just in a very different place emotionally. She was, it was still very new and very, very raw. I think I actually, he connected me to her because I wanted to put a show of art on of all the art from the show on in LA. I wanted to curate an exhibition. And so I was talking to her about that. And then I realized what their story was. And I was like, wow, this is such a beautiful story. Um, so that's how, that's how that evolved over a couple of years. And the story is so like tender and delicate in these uh, places as Buzz uh, as his mind starts to deteriorate over over years and and it can be really hard to tease out information and interview people about such delicate subject matter so i wonder if you know just for you how you went about you know in, interviewing Janie and Danny about things that are so delicate and doing it in a way that sort of honor honored their story but in the same way you know getting the information you need to tell the story you wanted to tell i felt like um just a deep connection with both of them because my, as soon as I, when I met Dane, uh, sorry, when I met Janie, I believe my baby, I had, I had a baby born very early. She was born like three months early and she was in the NICU for four and a half months. And I oh, think, wow. and she was very sick. And then when she came home, it was a process of care, caregiving, um, that was beyond normal parenting. Um, mm -hmm. It was, I think I was, I was still very, very raw from that experience and just 
you know, almost maybe still in shock, probably in the same way they, they were from, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't say what, how they were, but I did feel like a, a kind of deep empathy and connection to them through just going through this myself. And, um, I don't know. I just felt like, I felt like I could talk about, I kind of felt like talking to them helped me too, in a lot of ways. And I kind of felt like we were just having a conversation about Mm. these things that were really hard, you know? Now the, the, okay. So let's just say the, the documentary filmmaker or the journalist who like blows your mind is who? That's a great question. Um, Well, I've been seeing a lot of music documentaries lately that I never watched before and that I've also really saw this one about the 13th floor elevators, Rocky Erickson recently. That was beautiful. Um, But thinking like the journalists who, I mean, I like, um, why am I blanking on her name? The journalist and the murderer. um, Janet Malcolm. Janet Malcolm. I like Janet Malcolm. I like uh, Rebecca Solnit. I like Rachel Kushner. There's a lot. There's a lot of people. Um, Pam Pam Koloff is a, a friend and somebody I really respect yeah. her process. And I think, yeah, I, I I think she's somebody I look up to. Um, documentary filmmakers like Errol Morris and his early work, Burn in Florida and Tabloid. I, I those are great films. The Mazels, The Salesman, such a great film. Um, mm-hmm. So. But there's so there's so many, but yeah. Regarding the a, a lot of the women that you cited for the journalists that you admire, like what is it about you know their work that you look at it and you're like it blows you away and you're like I I, I want to try to emulate that element of what they do you know to make to elevate my own work. Hmm, that's such a good question. Well. I think Pam's work is so thorough and so just so patient. So just, she spends time with difficult topics and she really tries to figure it out. But I think the thing I like most is the emotion, um, the emotion that you get from reading it, the, how tactile it is. Um, I, I, I think it's just the way of constructing sentences and using language to get, an emotional response from all of those writers. I, I like that I can identify with these human beings and feel like a deep emotion um, with them or um, about them. And it feels like literature to me feels like doesn't have to feel like stodgy journalism. It feels like reading a good book, but it's also true, you know, and it's, right. um, Yeah. Well, I, I got that sense the the um, the emotion too with your with your piece, uh, you know, especially, you know how how Buzz in his later years really bonded to Danny and vice versa, and how you know Danny took the care to how he how he bathed him and read to him and all that, and it was just like that was like deeply, you know, that that emotional kernel that you're talking about with Pam's work and the others. It's just like I, I felt that too in a, in a very significant way while reading this work. So I think that those influences really permeated permeated your work here. Oh well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, I think it's like I want to write things that make people cry, but in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like I still cry when I think about their story. And I just, I think it's a great example of love. And I just think any story like that should is a story that should be told. Yeah, I guess like accessing those like that deep level of emotion. And that's something I saw a lot when I was working with incarcerated people and their stories, because there's so much at stake. It's just a really heavy place. Oh, but yeah. uh, but this was like a, a heavy thing that ended in a nice way um, for Danny and Janie. Right. Well, very nice. Well, Kelly, it's an it's an incredible piece, and uh, I, I look forward to you know whatever whatever else you've got coming down the pipeline for sure. Now that we've been uh, now now that I've been acquainted with uh, with what you're up to, so uh, I have to commend you on a, an amazing job on this piece. And uh, and uh, a, as we close down here, you know, where can people you know find you and get more familiar with your work online? And yeah, get familiar with your work. Probably the best place is my website. Um... Just my first and last name, kellyloudenberg.com. I'm going to update it soon. I did a podcast, too, that that came out um, like five months ago about Landmark Forum, Hmm. um, which was heavy on the writing side, too. Um, But, yeah, I'm not on social media yet, so um, it's probably just going to be my website for now. Resist. Resist, Kelly. (laughs) I'm I'm trying. (laughs) I see you're on it, but I understand why. And I, I liked your Instagram page a lot. Oh, very nice. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I like those little snippets. It's good. Little oh, cool. teasers. Yeah, they 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 help. They help kind of get the word out. I wish I didn't have to use it at all because social media makes me feel icky. Um, but it is a way to get the celebrate people's work. I try to reframe it in my head that it's uh, you know it's not it's it's to celebrate other people's work. And when I frame it like that, it doesn't feel as gross and uh and it feels more in service of a community versus, you know, being like, "Hey, look at me. Look at me." Well, that's actually that's absolutely how I see your yeah, I when I looked at it, I was so happy that it was there cuz it was a great little teaser, you know, into all these different people that you've interviewed. So, I, cool. I think it's I think it's worthwhile. You should keep it. CNFers, thanks for listening. Thanks to Sayward, always. Thanks to Kelly, my goodness. As part of my little partnership with Long Reads, Long Reads, you can read some of this transcript along with a pithy intro written by your buddy B.O. If you don't subscribe to the show, go ahead and give it a try. It doesn't cost you anything, unless you want it to. More on that later. We get into some great stuff here and there, and I hope you stick around. I hope you can tell that... There is little by way of pretension on this little podcast that could. If you want to help the show, consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you've sworn off Starbucks and don't know what to do with $4 of of those uh, $4 of your coffee budget every month, consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod and uh, share some of that cheddar. You'll get some sweet goodies, a chance to ask guest interviews, and I, I credit you if you uh, submit a question for a future guest. I'm not a monster. The show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. I had a parting shot. I really did. Then I forgot to write it down, and then the parting shot disappeared, as they do. But maybe I'll conjure a new one, like I'm the great magician Justin Willman. Love that guy. 
funny as hell. You know what? Maybe I'll riff on the writer as drummer. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. But what is a drummer boiled down? Timekeeper, purveyor of groove and pace. And what is a writer except someone doling out information and story blocks at the pace the story deserves? Accenting each element with the right crash, knowing when to step back and keep a simple 4-4. But then there might be chances to syncopate the beat where the story seems to skip a beat and feel slightly unhinged. But then you bring it back laying down that dirty beat. That keeps the reader moving along at a clip dictated by the tonality of the story, the material, the song, if you will. Sure, he can be showy and fast and all kinds of kinetic and virtuosic. But what is it if it's not in service of the story or the song? It's usually showing some degree of restraint, right? Yeah, man, we're not lead singers. We're not melting faces with guitar solos. We're at the back of the stage, behind the kit, because without us, that shit falls apart. Speaking of drummers, man, Taylor Hawkins, come on, Foo Fighters, jeez, that's a gut punch. One of my favorite bands. I was set to see Foo Fighters twice this summer, haven't seen them before. Uh, 50 years old, wife, kids, by all accounts, a good dude. Man, my heroes from the 90s are dying, man. Chris Cornell, Scott Weiland, Kurt Cobain, obviously, now Hawkins. I don't know what I'm going to do when one of my guys from Metallica dies, but uh, I'm not going to be a fun guy that day, that's for sure. They're that important to me. I know they're just a band, and I know their music is eternal, and that's really what matters as a fan. It's not like I know them. But still, I'm, I'm sure you have a band or an artist you really lock into, and you know the world will be a shit ton dimmer when they die. Anyway... Stay cool, CNFers. Stay wild. And if you can't do, interview. See ya.